You walk across the street barefoot, you will definitely get at least a second, if not a third degree burn. Looking back at what was likely the hottest recorded month in world history, we'll hear three stories of living through extreme weather disasters. For Sunday, August 8th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Heartbreak at the World Cup. The U.S. loses to Sweden by the narrowest of narrow margins. We all know the USA for that winning mentality, and that just didn't quite seem to be that spark this time around. We'll talk about the sudden death penalty kick loss and look ahead to who's left in the tournament. We'll also head to Mexico to learn about the hidden side of the avocado industry. And in this week's Enlighten Me, what it meant to rediscover an indigenous family history. It's not just, you know, burning some sage and wearing a headband. It's about who's maintaining the authority in that. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Lawyers for former President Donald Trump have until 5 p.m. tomorrow to respond to a request rather, for a protective order limiting information that he can share connected to the insurrection case against him. NPR's Amy Held reports it comes after Trump posted a threatening message on social media. Prosecutors cited Trump's history of going after witnesses in their protective order request. He had posted, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. His campaign says those words are the definition of political speech. Free speech is a strategy Trump's defense is expected to use after he pressured then-Vice President Mike Pence to block the certification of Joe Biden's win. Trump's lawyer, John Loro, spoke to CNN. Asking is aspirational. Asking is not action. It's core free speech. Meanwhile, another ask, Trump made in a phone call to Georgia's Secretary of State to find the votes needed to put him ahead there, spurred what could be Trump's fourth criminal indictment expected in the coming days. Amy Held, NPR News. More than three years after the killing of George Floyd, the last former Minneapolis police officer convicted in connection with that crime faces sentencing tomorrow. As Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports, judge found Tu Tao guilty of aiding and abetting manslaughter. Tu Tao can be seen on video keeping concerned bystanders away as Derek Chauvin kneels on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes. The murder of Floyd, who was black, prompted racial justice protests around the world. Unlike his co-defendants Thomas Lane and J. Alexander King, Tao declined a plea deal and opted to have a Minnesota judge decide his case. In addition to the state charges, a federal court convicted all four ex-officers of violating Floyd's civil rights. King and Lane are serving terms of around three years concurrent with their state sentences. Chauvin was sentenced to more than 20 years. For NPR News, I'm Matt Sepik in Minneapolis. Veterans have less than one week to file for retroactive benefits under the PACT Act. NPR's Quill Lawrence reports this law covers toxic exposures going back decades. There's no deadline for vets and their families or survivors to apply for benefits related to exposures like Agent Orange in Vietnam or cancer-causing smoke from burn pits in Iraq or Afghanistan. But those who apply by Wednesday, August 9th, may get a year of retroactive benefits. President Biden is urging vets to sign up. All you have to do is visit va.gov slash pact. So don't wait. Don't wait. Apply today. The VA estimates millions of veterans are owed disability and health care benefits due to toxic exposures. So far, the VA says it has been granting almost 80 percent of applications for PACT Act benefits. Quill Lawrence reporting. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. State Senate President Karen Spilka is defending the legislature after delivered its 13th consecutive late state budget. This one nearly a month overdue. The state had been running on two interim budgets. Spilka said on WBZ's On the Record today that those interim budgets meant the state never faltered on paying its employees. The parties were working hard. Uh, The two chairs of Ways and Means were working hard. I'm glad that we got it done. I'm glad that it's behind us. Uh, Honestly, what I hear from most people who from the state out and outside that it's such a great budget, it was worth the wait. The House and Senate agreed on the $55 billion budget and sent it to Governor Mara Healey. The governor has until Thursday to act on the budget. This year's Pan Mass Challenge is wrapping up. Thousands of cyclists pedaled to raise money for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Zoe Epstein of Belmont rode from Wellesley to Provincetown over two days. Grateful that I can physically do the ride um, and support PMC's mission. You know, just thrilled to be a part of such an inspiring event. The Pan Mass Challenge estimates it will beat last year's fundraising record of $69 million. Dine Out Boston is underway. For the next two weeks, more than 100 restaurants will be offering discounted specials. The head of Boston's Tourism Bureau says the program has expanded to include restaurants that represent the city's diverse culture. An amateur botanist has discovered a new plant for Massachusetts. The plant is called Pine Drops, and it was found in the Berkshires. A Mass Wildlife State biologist called the discovery of a new native plant in Massachusetts extraordinary. Pine Drops are most common in the Rocky Mountains, but are found in scattered patches in the Northeast. It's 5.06. At Fenway this afternoon, the Red Sox lost to the Blue Jays 13-1. Increase in clouds for tonight, 66 for a low. Tomorrow, a blend of sun and clouds. Sticky, a couple of showers for tomorrow, upper 70s. WBUR supporters include the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Here's how U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres started his press conference on climate change at the end of July. Humanity is in the hot seat. And you can think of that as an extremely grim dad joke, because humanity really hasn't ever been this hot. The U.N.'s World Meteorological Organization is still analyzing the final numbers, but it's pretty likely that July was the hottest month in terms of the average global temperature in recorded history. Along with that heat has come a steady stream of climate-driven disasters. For vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa, and Europe, it's a cruel summer. Here in the U.S., there's been historically bad flooding. The capital of Vermont tonight underwater, shut down most of the day, authorities fearing a nearby dam may not hold. Cities blanketed in smoke. Wildfires burning in eastern Canada are causing dangerous air quality conditions for millions of Americans from New England all the way down to Washington, D.C. And heat wave after heat wave. In Death Valley, California, temperatures hit 125 degrees today, just five degrees shy from the hottest temp recorded on Earth. As Guterres put it, climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. 
And since this really is just the beginning, since summers like this one and worse can be expected in the years ahead, for our Sunday cover story, we thought it would be worth checking in with some of the people who lived through July's climate-driven disasters to see what they were like firsthand, to hear how they've coped and what they'd like to see work better the next time disaster strikes. And we're going to start in Phoenix, Arizona, with Dr. Frank Lavecchio, who works in the emergency department at Valleywise Health Medical Center. When we caught up with him, after 31 straight days with highs at 110 degrees or hotter, the city had finally gotten a break. Kind of. What is a reprieve like in Phoenix in August this year? 109. You know, our high of the day was 109. But more importantly, at night, because it rained, we were able to dip into the 80s. By contrast, in July, the average low temperature stayed above 90 degrees. And the relentless heat sent a lot of people to Dr. Levecchio's emergency room. About two years ago or so, we might see one case a week, maybe two cases of severe heat stroke. Now, during this past month or so, on a slow day, we'd see three. On a busier day, we'd see, you know, six or seven of them. Wow. And this is a, a patient that needs full court press. We're aggressive about what we do, which is put them in an ice bath. So you use a body bag because it's non-permeable. And you put a patient in a body bag. You know, they come in unconscious and comatose with temperatures over 107 and cover them with ice, bury them with ice and water. I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago. You said a slow day over the past month or so was typically what you saw over the course of a week in previous years when it comes to the the number of people coming into the hospital with very serious heat stroke. Is that right? Yes, that's true. And we also have a burn center, one of the busiest burn centers, and we certainly see many contact burns. It turns out that when the temperature is over 100 degrees, the asphalt can get up to 160 degrees. Another way to say that is if you walk across the street barefoot, you will definitely get at least a second, if not a third degree burn. In those cases, many times people fall, they have burns all over. Our burn center is bursting at the seams with patients who had heat illness and have a potentially life-threatening burn. I mean, you, you talk about the, the higher numbers coming in. Are you seeing the type of burnout in your ER at your hospital that you saw at the peak of COVID because of this heat? To be honest, yes. When we see these patients many times, they go to the intensive care unit, and the intensive care unit was full. Many of these patients are homeless, so if you have mild heat illness and you're homeless, you're just waiting in the ER. We have a policy not to just discharge somebody if they had like a heat illness issue, not to just discharge them back to the street, you know, where it's, you know, hot, et cetera. And there have been patients in our emergency department that were waiting three days for a shelter bed. And it's not quite emergency medicine if there's just somebody who just really doesn't need anything, just a place to stay. It's more related to the, the social systems and the social you know, faults that we have right now. Dr. Frank Levecchio in Phoenix. So Arizona's problem was a hot July. Vermont's problem was a wet one. My phone started getting alerts about road closures in other parts of uh, the county. And then I'm getting, you know, alerts for a flash flood warning. And and then it just suddenly sunk in that this was getting bad quickly. Michelle Edelman McCormick is a general manager at the Marshfield Village store in a rural area of Vermont. And that's where she was on July 10th, as two months worth of rain fell on already saturated soil in just a couple of days. 
It wasn't long before roads started to fail, bridges collapsed, all in the type of intense and concentrated rainstorms that we know will become more common and more powerful in a hotter climate. Homes were inundated. A landslide took out the village's water and sewer system. Uh, we were without any running water for about 11 days, pushing 12. And then, of course, there was a boil water notice after that. Without water and with road access to the outside world largely cut off, the Marshfield Village store, on high ground right in the center of town, became a sort of pop-up relief hub. We opened up a distribution center with cleaning supplies, relief supplies, food and water in the neighbor's lawn right next to the store. And all of this was almost second nature for McCormick because she had been through something like this before. She did relief work in New Orleans' Lower Ninth Ward right after Katrina. And after that, she lived in Naples, Florida, through two more big hurricanes. And so I actually moved up to Marshfield, Vermont, to try and create a uh, future for my, you know, my children and other folks in a place that is slated to be that much more climate resilient. And yet you found yourself dealing with this, this catastrophic flooding. I mean, did that change the way that you feel about whether that feels like a safe place to be? Actually, for me, it actually reaffirmed that this is where I need to be. Why is Um, that? Because there is such a a built-in level of resilience here and a culture of mutual aid. Mm -hmm. Everything that, you know, happened in this town was a result of people in Marshfield helping to take care of people in Marshfield and our volunteer government. And that gets to another question I want to ask you, like extreme weather is clearly going to continue. There will be more flooding in the future. Is there anything local or federal government could do to make this process better the next time around? For the federal response, I think this many years after Hurricane Katrina, I'm still shocked at the levels of, I guess, ineptitude. Mm -hmm. There's really no other way to describe it. And that probably felt personal on both ends to you, given your work and your time in the Lower Ninth Ward. Absolutely. I mean, a a clear example was that day two, I knew that we needed to start planning for showers because it's hot, it's muggy, people are working on their flood damaged homes, they don't have any water. So, you know, I told our emergency manager we should get showers. He agreed and he put the request in. They said they would have to source it. It took the National Guard to bring in these giant, expensive water buffalo. Mm -hmm. And FEMA had to figure out how to get the water into the water buffalo because they didn't want to transport them full. And then it took a private contractor to bring in the actual shower units. And all three of these things did not end up in the same place at the same time. And nobody could figure out still how to pressurize it. And then I assume by then everyone had figured out how to take a shower in, in in one way or another. Yeah. I mean, it used to be the the commentary after Katrina was that it took the U.S. government 10 days to figure out how to get a, a bottle of water into a major metropolitan area in the United States. And uh, it appears as though that dynamic has not changed a whole lot. Michelle Edelman McCormick, general manager at Marshfield Village Store, a worker-owned co-op. We did reach out to FEMA, and a spokesperson told us that in Marshfield, FEMA was only tasked to provide bulk water for state showers that FEMA was never requested to provide any other resources. Now, if you were on the East Coast this summer, you could probably see or smell the smoke from the wildfires burning in Canada. And given that, you probably grasp just how bad things were close to the wildfires in places like the Cree Nation of Nemiska, an indigenous community in Quebec. The smoke was so bad there that 
they, they didn't know whether it was night or day at times. That's Will Nichols, a Cree from Mistassini, which has also been choked in smoke this summer. He's the editor-in-chief of Nation News. When did the forest fires in northern Quebec start this summer? Oh, God. seems so long ago. <laughs> yeah. It was the uh, beginning of June. He thinks the provincial government should have done more to protect the hunting camps that many Cree rely on for their livelihoods. And our camps aren't simple camps. They're actually houses and whatnot. And you, know, you have ATVs there. You have snowmobiles. You have generators, a home. That's all gone. How long is it going to take to recover from all of that? Oh, that's, I'm not sure. It's going to be years. You're talking the size of these blazes are, you know, in millions of hectares. You're talking about animal life. That's going to have a hard time recovering from that. With the Crees, about a third of our population trap, hunt, and uh, gather. We have treaties that we've made that guarantee our, our way of life. My question is, why aren't you doing something to ensure that? That was Will Nichols, a member of the Cree Nation of Mistassini in Quebec. He was living with the smoke of wildfires. We also heard from Michelle Edelman-McCormick about intense flooding in Vermont, and Frank Levecchio about trying to keep people alive who had spent too much time out in the deadly heat of Phoenix. Just three stories of many more from what was likely the hottest month ever recorded. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR, a new study shows being exposed to different smells could help improve learning and memory. How and why that happens. Tomorrow morning with Rupa Shinoy on 90.9 WBUR. Start your week here. From the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything you missed. Download the WBUR app today. The Red Sox lost to the Blue Jays this afternoon, 13-1. to The Sox play again Monday night against the Kansas City Royals. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting John Oliver live on August 27th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump's lawyers have until 5 p.m. tomorrow to respond to a Justice Department request for a protective order after Trump issued a threat on social media. This after his third indictment over his role in events leading up to the January 6th insurrection. The last former Minneapolis police officer convicted in connection with the murder of George Floyd faces sentencing tomorrow. Tu Tao was found guilty of aiding and abetting manslaughter. And at the Women's World Cup, Sweden knocked out the two-time defending champion, the United States, winning 5-4 to four on penalty kicks. It was the earliest ever exit for the top-ranked U.S. Sweden now faces Japan in the corner final in New Zealand on Friday. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Americans consume a lot of avocados, and you may have heard how a lot of those avocados come from Mexico. But a podcast from Texas Public Radio focuses on a part of the avocado trade that you may not have heard of. In Mexico, armed groups and cartels use violence to try and control this lucrative business. The podcast is called Caliber 60, and it looks at the complicated relationship between that violence and the people being forced out of Mexico because of it. People like Linda, whose story takes center stage in episode one of Caliber 60. She's from a small town in Michoacan in central Mexico. It's one of several avocado-producing communities that have experienced cartel violence. We aren't using her last name to protect her identity. Caliber 60 hosts Stephanie Corpi and Toya Sarno-Jordan pick up the story from there. These are communities whose sole income relies on agriculture. Their land has the perfect conditions to grow a product that is in very high demand. I eat avocados probably four times a week. Avocado is amazing. It's probably my favorite vegetable. Is it a fruit? I don't even know. It's delicious. In 1985, Americans ate 436 million pounds of avocados per year. By 2020, that number exploded to 2.7 billion. I mean, there are even avocado bars in New York. You know, last year I was in New York and I saw avocados being sold in the Lower East Side for $4 an avocado. We all love our sourdough avocado toast with poached eggs or a spicy guacamole while watching the game. Remember this year's Super Bowl ad? The one where Anna Ferris plays Eve in the Garden of Eden and New York City is now the big avocado? And then the catchy avocados from Mexico. How are avocados in one of the most expensive ad placements in the world? Well, that's easy. This is a $3 billion business driven by a voracious demand from the U.S. And the main producer is Linda's home, the Mexican state of Michoacán. So for people in Michoacán, changing their crops to avocados meant having more income, living in a better house, and finding a livelihood that could give them new opportunities in the agriculture business. But new money doesn't go unnoticed. Over the weekend, the U.S. temporarily banned Mexican avocados due to a security threat, a threat highlighting the criminal element that continues to afflict the avocado market. Avocado imports came to a screeching halt right before the 2022 Super Bowl, and the rotten underbelly of this industry was exposed in the United States. But this story is way bigger than avocados. Ixtaro, Linda's quiet hometown in Michoacán, 
had remained relatively calm at a time when other parts of Mexico had become battlefields for organized crime. No la pasábamos en la calle jugando con la tierra porque antes no estaban pavimentadas las calles. Before streets were paved, kids had fun playing outside on dirt roads. Todo el mundo ahí se saludaba. Cuando había una fiesta, pues todo el mundo se invitaba. Neighbors organized parties, and like in any small town, everyone was invited. Uno, este, se encontraba la gente, empezaba uno a platicar. You'd chat with anyone you'd meet. Everyone knew everything about everyone. That's why the arrival of unfamiliar men didn't go unnoticed. They weren't from around town. Nunca dijeron de dónde venían. Ni, ni, ni sus nombres, they never said where they came from or shared their names. The first time Linda saw weapons in Ixtaro, they were hanging off the shoulders of these men who drove by in SUVs. As weeks went by, these appearances became more frequent, and the SUVs multiplied. So did the guns. A la tercera semana ya eran cuatro camionetas y ya más llenas de hombres armados. By the third week, there were four trucks filled with more men. They stopped occasionally to buy things at the store and continued on their way. But the real problems began when they decided to stay. Entonces ellos lo que hacían al principio era ver qué casa estaba sola. They started squatting in abandoned houses, many left behind by people who migrated to the U.S. But once all the empty houses were taken, they began forcing families out of their own homes. El dueño de la casa ya no le quedaba de otra, porque pues está, ellos estaban armados. At gunpoint, people were cast to the street. How do you say no to an armed group of men? En la noche tomaban empezaban a aventar balazos al viento o no sé dónde, pero se escuchaba en la noche mucha balacera. Linda recalls that these men often got drunk and gunshots could be heard throughout the evening. The still nights of Ixtaro had ended. But why? Cartels across the country are fighting for the lucrative drug trafficking routes into the United States. Uh, so the latest figures are around 39 dead. Now this, as you said, this is an area uh, right on the border of Michoacan. The average American now eats seven pounds of avocados a year. The demand has made a lot of farmers in Mexico rich, but it's also drawn the attention of organized crime. Avocados. The crop that brought money and abundance to Ixtaro had caught the eye of the narco group Los Viagras. Yes like the little blue pill. All narcos are after one thing, money, regardless of where it's coming from. In el rancho, lo único que hacían era pedirles cuotas a las personas que tenían sus huertas de aguacate. Linda explains that Los Viagras began charging avocado farmers a fee, one that could cost them their lives if they failed to pay. Extorting avocado farmers was Los Viagras' way into the industry and into new territory. Sadly, this is nothing new in Michoacán. Porque de hecho yo cuando escuchaba los balazos y todo eso, yo decía esto solamente pasa en películas. This only happens in movies, Linda thought to herself, when news of violence in nearby towns began to build fear in Ixtaro. Many towns in Michoacán were invaded years before Ixtaro, when the infamous Mexican drug war began back in 2006. Peace died a long time ago in Michoacán. 
and American guns are fueling this violence. You're listening to Caliber 60. The size of avocados is measured by caliber, just like ammunition. And this story is about America's obsession with both. For decades, the U.S. and Mexico have been in constant negotiations over how to deal with migrants, drugs, and guns moving across the border. Uh, one of the flows that has been uh, widely identified is that while drugs flow north, uh, money and weapons come south. That's Cecilia Farfan Mendez, a security expert at UC San Diego and co-founder of Mexico Violence, a think tank that researches violence trends in Mexico. So increasingly what we're seeing in Mexico is people being violently displaced from their communities, from groups that are actually heavily armed. So, she adds that this displays of weapons help create a perception of power, building fear within the community. Like this video released by one of the most powerful groups, Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación. The video shows several dozen uniformed men armed with military-grade weapons, including 50-caliber sniper rifles, alongside a convoy of armored vehicles. When you go to the forensic lab, where there's been up to 1,000 dead bodies, just bodies everywhere, right? In the next room is the women and children looking for their disappeared. You know, you can smell them, for goodness sake. That's Timothy Sloan, ATF's former attaché in Mexico City. He's seen up close the deaths these weapons and drugs are causing. Realistically, at least 80% of the firearms in Mexico come from the United States. That's right. By tracing seized weapons found in shootings in Mexico, Sloan and his team were able to estimate that around 80% of all firearms in the country come from the United States. In all of Mexico, there is only one legal gun store. Somehow, the country is still littered with high-powered weapons, mostly smuggled from the United States. Now the Mexican government is taking an unprecedented step, suing arms manufacturers in U.S. federal court. In 2021, the Mexican government sued 11 American gun manufacturers like Colt, Smith & Wesson, and Beretta. Here's Alejandro Celorio, Mexico's lead attorney in the lawsuit. The gun industry, the big manufacturers that were, are, were suing, are on notice and are aware that their products are sold to cartels, to criminals, and they have done nothing to change this. This lawsuit seeks $10 billion for the negligence that has let millions of guns slip across the border. And we're not just talking about pistols. Let's remember that in Mexico we have civilians um, committing crimes with military-style weapons, weapons that shouldn't be in the hands of civilians. Celorio is right. In March 2022, the Mexican army seized a historic amount of high-powered weapons and ammunition, including six 50-caliber weapons, 130 long guns, and three million rounds of high-caliber ammunition. And as mentioned in the previous news clip, there's only one legal gun store in the country, compared to the over 52,000 in the U.S. Celorio believes the Mexican government is doing the best they can to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. The governments have been doing their job, but what about the corporations? The lawsuit has been criticized for being politically motivated, but something needs to be done. More and more military-grade weapons are being found in crime scenes in Mexico. Now the concern isn't just how many, but how big. 
viral videos from the 2023 capture of El Chapo Son, Ovidio Guzman, show narcos firing at military helicopters and airplanes with 50-caliber machine guns. In other words, these are civilians trying to shoot down Mexican military helicopters with U.S. military weapons. Violence keeps reaching new levels in Mexico. Left with no protection from authorities, grassroots groups sprouted in Michoacán. And back in Ixtaro, that glimmer of hope was called Pueblos Unidos, or United Towns. Y yo, la verdad, yo sí estaba tan emocionada, como no se imaginan, como, como que yo decía, wow, hasta que alguien vino a salvarnos. Linda was excited that someone finally came to rescue them from the hold of the narco group Los Viagras. In 2020, the Vigilante Band of Farmers Pueblos Unidos formed to defend their avocado crops from narco control. Irene Álvarez, a sociologist and researcher from the Colegio de México, explains that these self-defense groups emerged as a means to defend their territory. Self-defense groups like Pueblos Unidos not only fight with weapons, but with politics. Small towns supported by self-defense groups suddenly had political leverage and the attention of local governments. For a community held hostage by narcos, this might be the only option. Pueblos Unidos secretly approached Ixtaro, offering their help to fight off the narcos. Linda didn't want her children around weapons, but under the grip of narco control, Ixtaro had no choice but to join Pueblos Unidos. A few months later, their true motivations came to light. That was an excerpt from the first episode of the podcast Caliber 60, which is reported and produced by Stefania Corby and Toya Sarno-Jordan. It's a production of Texas Public Radio and supported by the Pulitzer Center. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, for years, conservatives in Washington have criticized the so-called administrative state. These are agencies like the SEC and the FDA. The notion that career civil servants are just kind of working away expertly and don't have a political agenda is not true. Now, with Donald Trump leading the pack for the Republican nomination and a favorable Supreme Court, conservatives are thinking about how to dismantle it for good. Find out how on Morning Edition. You can listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or ask for your member station by name. This is NPR News. Now to the World Cup. It was tied after 90 minutes. It was tied after extra time. It was tied after the first full round of penalty kicks. And then in sudden death penalty kicks, the United States lost to Sweden in the cruelest way possible. Lena Hurdig's winning goal crossed the line by about a millimeter after U.S. goalie Alyssa Nair initially seemed to stop it. It's the earliest the U.S. has ever been eliminated from the World Cup. And to put it into context and to look ahead at this dramatic tournament, soccer writer Sophie Downey is joining us from Sydney, Australia. Hey, Sophie. Hey, thanks for having me on. I mean, it's hard to know where to start with that match, but probably all the missed penalty kicks on the U.S. side. I mean, what a hard finish for the U.S. squad. 
Yeah, it's really tough. And I think penalty kicks are always the worst, aren't they? They're just so cruel at the end of, you know, 90 plus 30 minutes of absolutely grueling football. And then to, for it to come down to that, like millimetres, as it were, um, it was a grueling way to, to go out of the World Cup. I mean, is the U.S. story of this World Cup the two-time defending champions underachieving or is it the rest of the world catching up? I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I think the rest of the world has caught up and the rest of the world is finally taking women's football very, very seriously. And that that was always going to narrow that gap between what the USA have achieved in years gone by, you know, with the investment that they threw into the game way before anyone else did. So um, there was always going to be a narrowing. But I do think that probably the USA have also underachieved this tournament just in, in terms of the players that they have and the experience. I know they have a blend of youth and experience. But, you know, we all know the USA for that winning mentality, and that just didn't quite seem to be that spark this time around. Well, there have been other surprises, too. I mean, Germany bombed out of the, the World Cup as well. Now both uh, countries that have won it multiple times are eliminated. Uh, there have been a lot of surprises. Uh, there have. It's been definitely an unpredictable World Cup. Um, I think it's, you know, I think it goes to show the strength of the game. I think it's probably the best World Cup we've ever had in terms of the competitive side of it, nature of it. I think there's a lot of factors that go into different reasons why different nations are either succeeding or, you know, bombing out. But yeah, it's a very interesting one to keep an eye on, that's for sure. What's the one thing you saw today in the US-Sweden game that's going to stick in your mind? Uh, the performance of the goalkeepers, Achira Musevic. Um, but for her, the USA would have gone through. I don't know how she was reaching some of those saves. It was almost like she was seeing the ball slower and bigger than everyone else on the pitch. She was just getting to everything. And I think when you have a performance like that from your goalie, uh, you, you probably have to go through to the next round because she can't do all that for nothing. As as hard as it was to concede that here in the US, that, that was a phenomenal performance today. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was That's... what we're used to in England of seeing her perform like that. And, um, you know, she she has that ability. And it was one of those days where she just could do nothing wrong. But looking at the rest of the tournament, Sweden advances to take on Japan later this week. England is still in the hunt. Spain looked great in its first round match. Which teams are you focusing on as the field winnows to eight and then down to those finals eventually? So I think Japan really surprised a lot of people, not because we didn't know they had good players, but because I think at this stage in their development of their kind of rebuild or resurgence, none of us really thought they were quite there yet, but they're playing some brilliant stuff. Sweden, obviously, you saw today, you know, they come up against it and they, they find a way and, and find a way to get through. And then you can't look past England. I know they're playing tomorrow, but they are the European champions. They absolutely, you know, hit top form against China last time out. And it'll be interesting to see how they get on against Nigeria tomorrow. That is soccer writer Sophie Downey, who's in Australia covering the tournament. Thanks so much for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good afternoon, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 5.39, coming up at 6 on 90.9 WBUR. The New Yorker Radio Hour tackles the increasingly polarized politics in Nashville's country music. Listen again on the radio and anytime on the WBUR app. The Red Sox lost to the Blue Jays this afternoon, 13-1. The Sox play again Monday night against the Kansas City Royals. Partly cloudy skies for tonight, down to 66 for a low. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds. Sticky for tomorrow, a couple of showers around. Temperatures in the upper 70s. Tuesday, more clouds, breezy. 
Humid area thunderstorms are possible high near 80. This is WBUR. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The summer's brutal heat continues across the southern states this week, and the National Weather Service is forecasting more record temperatures. And from the northern plains to the mid-Atlantic and the northeast, there is a chance of severe thunderstorms and heavy, potentially flooding rainfall. Meanwhile, electricity prices in Texas are soaring this weekend, up more than 800 percent today. State energy officials are projecting close to emergency levels for the grid this evening. And the death toll from a train derailment in southern Pakistan has risen to at least 30 with dozens injured. Officials say around 10 cars went off the track, some overturned. The cause is under investigation. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. And NPR's Rachel Martin is back with another Enlighten Me conversation. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Scott. So you have two kids. Yes. I also have two kids. And I wonder if this has happened to you at this stage of the game where you look at one of your pretty young children and even at that stage... You see something in them. You're like, oh, my God, that's so me or so your spouse. Oh, yeah. But that recognition is crazy, right? My oldest is five and it's happening more and more as he kind of really like starts to become himself and then he'll do things. And I'll, sometimes I'll like be talking about it with my mom and she's like, yeah, you did exactly that. Or he'll do something <laughs> and I'm like, I do the version of that as an adult. And it's both like really rewarding and also like it's a strange feeling. It's a mix of like a lot of feelings at once when you see that. Right. <laughs> what I have recognized in doing these conversations about how people build spiritual identities is that so much of that has to do with a sense of belonging. And I'm going to tie this together with what we were just talking about, because sometimes right. we get that sense of belonging from our family, from our own spiritual legacies, and we recognize home in that. Yeah. And this is what I discerned after talking to this woman named Patty Crawick. She wrote a book called Becoming Kin, and it is about finding that sense of spiritual belonging when she reconnected with her estranged father. And was this a reconnection that she sought out, or was this something that more happened to her, or was happenstance? Mm, good question. She sought it out. Um, her dad is Ojibwe. Her dad is indigenous to Canada. That's where Patty's from. Her mom's side of the family, though, are white. They are white, German, and Ukrainians. So her parents split when she was young. She didn't have a relationship with her dad, but she had heard through the grapevine that her dad was working at a cab company in a neighboring town. And I'll let Patty pick up the story from there. 
So I started calling cab companies <laughs> and saying that I was, <laughs> you know, do you have a Roy Wesley working for you? And when I found one of them said yes, I left my number and said, tell him it's Vicky's daughter. Wow. And then he called me and then that just, yeah. Can you tell me about seeing him for the first time as an adult? After about a month, he decided to drive down. And when I opened the door, it was really like there was an Indian there. It was my face. I wasn't used to seeing my face looking back at me from anybody. And so in that moment, you know, when things that you know suddenly become very real, that's what had happened. This intellectual thing that I had always known that I was Native, that I was Ojibwe, this obligation that other people had always put on me. Like all through school, it would be, you know, dumb things like, you know, do you speak Indian? And, you know, what do Indians think about this? And like those dumb stereotypical things like that that I didn't have any way of answering because I didn't know. I learned about Indians the same way everybody else did from watching Little House on the Prairie and Bonanza. Right. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Me too. You know, but meeting him and having it become very real, if he's real, then my cousins are real. Then those people in those photographs are real. And I can talk to them. I can meet them. I can make friends with them. And I can learn more about how we exist in Canada and where are we. And I started going to the Native Centre in Toronto because we were living outside of Toronto at the time. And I started going there and I started going to powwows. He took me home and I met my granny and I met some cousins. And, you know, and, and it just kind of opened up this whole world for me. What did you learn about being not just Indian, but being Ojibwe? How did that start to take shape in your consciousness? Yeah, so... The Ojibwe are a very, um, we're bush Indians, right? We live in the forests, follow the caribou, follow the rice, you know, so depending on the time of year, you're living in different places. And it's a very decentralized kind of governance, which made a lot of sense to me. Like there's really very little sense of of hierarchy in uh, Ojibwe communities, it's much more horizontal, much more collective focused. And the connection with the world around me made a lot more sense. Hmm. Understanding that that everything is alive. And my mom will always say, you know, as long as you're not worshiping it. But that's such a... Ooh, what was that about? People have that misconception about animist type religions that we worship the trees, that we worship the rocks, that we worship whatever these, you know, these things are. Is it so bad to do that? Well, it's not a matter of worship. Like if I say I love my spouse, am I worshiping him? Uh No, I'm just caring about his well-being. And if I care about his well-being and he cares about my well-being, then together we have a good relationship. So when I say that, you know, when I'm acknowledging the fact that the trees and the rocks and the my dogs and that these are all spiritual beings with their own relationship to the creator. I'm in relationship with them. They take care of me. I take care of them. And together we build a world that's worth living in. Okay. So I I have so many questions about this, but it sounds like these two parts of yourself, as you are learning about your identity as someone in the Ojibwe community and, and meeting your dad's family, how is that sitting with you as 
a Christian, as an evangelical, because you describe this very diffuse leadership structure in Ojibwe communities. That's totally different than how evangelical churches are structured, obviously. And just the difference when it comes to how you treat and interact with the land. I mean, how what was going on in you? <laughs> yeah, you, well, you be, I started to feel very disconnected in both places because these two things like you described are very different. And there came a point where I was sitting in church one Sunday and I had a very clear sense that I was going to have to choose that I couldn't continue to straddle these two worlds that I was going to, I was going to have to pick one mm-hmm. and commit to it. And that this, and I had a very clear sense that this was it. This was your choice that there's no coming back from either of these. And there was no wrestling. I think perhaps the wrestling had been happening over the previous several years. Because when I had that very clear thought that I was going to have to choose, it was, well, how how do I choose anything but being Ojibwe? So you made that decision in the pews of your own Sitting in the pews church. of church. I don't, even, I don't even, I couldn't tell you what the sermon was about that day. But just sitting in the church, I was like, uh, well, obviously, how do I not choose being Ojibwe? That's who I am. That's who I have always been. Huh. And if that's incompatible with the things that this church is telling me, then that's too bad. That's what's going to have to get cut off. Because how do I turn my back on this much more expansive way of looking at the world and being in relationship to it. How do I turn my back on that? How do I turn my back on that community that I'm building? You write in your book, and this really grabbed me, that Christians are unmoored, landless people. Can you say more about that? Yeah, Christianity... It owes so much to this focus on the afterlife and and getting there. And they're not thinking about the impacts on the world around them. And disconnected from land and from the trees and from the water means it doesn't matter how we treat those things Mm. because they're just there for us to use. And we will use something else when that's used up. And then this rapture theology, that was also what I grew up in, this idea that we were all, you know, like the Left Behind series, right? Christians are all going to be raptured out their get out of jail free card. In the end times, yeah. That's even more disconnection from this world. Why should we care if it's just all going to get flattened anyway? Right. Whereas the Anishinaabe belief system is you have to care. Yes, we're passing through this world. There is an afterlife. But this world matters, Sarah Augustine has this wonderful line where she says they never asked if we had good news for them. That it wasn't just one way, that they weren't, that they didn't have a monopoly on the good news, the gospel, the truth. Right. They never asked if we had good news. And I thought, what a remarkable practice that would be to ask the Indigenous people of your area, you know, wherever you are, you know, what good news do they have for you? And how can you find rootedness in that place by listening to that good news? And then it becomes a reciprocal relationship. And it's, okay, well, I have these stories that teach us how to be human. And how do they connect with your stories Mm -hmm. about how to be human? And how can we put these things together? So we need to talk about a phenomenon called race shifting. Can you explain what that is in a Native context? Yeah, so that's when somebody, you know, who has 
lived white their whole life. Their family has lived white. Mom and dad are white. And somehow they either find a native ancestor or they make one up <laughs> or they'll say that they're native in their heart or we all bleed red or some, you know, kind of nonsense like that. Um, I only laugh because we have this in my family. Like there's, you know, the making up of mythologies around it and like, oh, great grandma well, Jenny totally looked like an Indian. Well, and the thing is, if you've lived in, you know, Canada or the U.S. for, you know, more than 100 years, 200 years, if not like you personally, but your family, um, chances are you do have an indigenous ancestor. You might, <laughs> you know, that's entirely possible. But if you've got four generations, five generations, 10 generations of people, people who have lived white married white you're you're white you're american you haven't lived among the cherokee and been part of that community and you're not entitled to that identity yeah because that's not who's claiming you and why does that one ancestor out of dozens of others get prime position in mm. your life why do you think that is like what is responsible for that phenomenon among like white people especially in the west i mean i'm from idaho i, I joke that we have that that story in my family but so many people from there have, have so many people stories. do and in that area that is probably related to the allotments so you know, they moved all the Indians west, uh, Andrew Jackson, and called it Indian country. And then the settlers wanted that too. So they decided to break it up. They broke up a lot of reservations. And if you had any Indian blood, if you were like, you know, a quarter Indian, half Indian, full Indian, you were entitled to land. You didn't have to participate in one of those land rushes. You just got it. Um, and so people would make up ancestors and say, mm. oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I'm a, obviously I'm Cherokee. Or they would take control of a native child. And it really shouldn't surprise us that a society built on colonization would feel itself entitled to becoming the people. And so if settlers, instead of trying to pretend that they're native and looking for belonging that way, instead acknowledge that, yeah, they benefited from displacement. So how about we work with Indigenous people, maybe honor that distant relative by working with Indigenous people to prevent further displacement? Mm rather than trying to concoct a whole new identity that makes them feel better about themselves for whatever reason. Right. What do you make of, I don't know if spiritual appropriation is right, but there is this reverence that a lot of non-Native people have for the spiritual traditions of Indigenous Americans. There's a real hunger for some of the spiritual ritual and religious traditions of Native people. How does that sit with you? How do you make sense of it? Yeah, so there are some people who go in whole hog. They build the community and then they participate in ceremony as an expression of becoming, uh, of having become part of that community. Um, I belong to a hand drum group and we have members who, you know, when we do moon ceremony, we don't ask only indigenous people to come. Anybody can come to moon ceremony, um, but it's still our ceremony. They're not taking it and going off and holding their own moon ceremony with the things they learned from indigenous people. And I think that's the real difference is who who's holding the authority in that room. Are you coming in order to, to learn how to connect with this place and how to become part of our community? Or are you just taking parts of our spirituality because 
you've realized that your own belief system is somehow empty and bankrupt and this speaks right. to you, right. you know, <laughs> but you're not building those relationships. You're just getting it out of books and watching YouTube videos and maybe attending a couple of ceremonies, but not investing yourself in the other aspects of that community as well, because it's not like going to church or converting to Christianity. It's becoming part of a community, which means that our political needs are also have to be part of that. That means that you're also part of land back. They are also part of children back. You know, you know, you, they are also part of these other things. These political social movements that are intrinsic to Native communities. Yeah. Yeah. That it's not just, you, you know, burning some sage and wearing a headband, you know, clearing your space of negative energies. Right. It's, you know, it's about who's maintaining the authority in that. Which is what, what so much of modern spirituality is about as, pe as people become untethered to these mainstream institutions, religious institutions. They're kind of picking and choosing from a bunch of different traditions. I think Native traditions in particular are something that people look for. But then it becomes almost this self-indulgent thing where it's just about me and like my own self-care and there's no kind of widening your aperture to look at what what responsibility do I have to take what I'm learning from this tradition and then like make the world better like it, like apply it yeah it becomes very much like well now I'm going to disconnect that spiritual practice from its roots and I'm going to make mm. it mean something else and I'm going to disconnect that spiritual practice from its community and mm. it, as soon as you do that it becomes it's no longer that thing it's no longer communicating the things it's supposed to be communicating. Now it's just another thing, another thing that we put on our shelves, another ritual that we do that really doesn't connect us to anything. Patty Krawak, she's the author of Becoming Kin. Patty, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a really different and enjoyable conversation. 